invite you to stand with me for our scripture reading this morning. Uh, the passage is on page 9 of your worship guide. Uh, we're going to be reading just uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. We're not going to read the entire text here. Hear now God's word. The end of all things is, is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Peter begins in verse 7 by saying the end of all things is at hand. Now, by that, Peter does not necessarily mean that tomorrow Jesus is coming back. If that is what he meant, then we would be sorely disappointed and he would be a bit off the mark. In Greek, the the language that Peter is using has a broader uh, semantic domain, which means that it can uh, be understood as referencing not particularly or not necessarily a particular point in time in which things come to an end, but uh, a shift in epics. Uh, Peter is in saying in one sense, now we are entering in the last chapter of God's redemptive plan. Now we are in the final phase. And for Peter, in light of this reality, in light of entering this final phase, there's an appropriate way for the community of God to live. This is what he's been exhorting the churches, is to be faithful in a particular way, to pursue holiness. Why? Because it's both good for the people in the church, but it also puts on display the, uh, the salvation of God wrought in Christ to the entire world. Right? The church, in one sense, is a dramatic acting out of what God offers in Christ to the world. And as Peter presses this home, what he focuses on particularly is the nature of community. He exhorts the churches in Asia Minor to be serious about the way that they treat one another and invest in one another and serve one another. He says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all. Why is community, or we might say Christian friendship, so important to Peter. Why is it a priority for him? Well, in the course of his epistle, he will say that you need Christian friendship to survive. You live in a dangerous world in which Satan hunts for you. You need Christian friendship to be faithful. Being faithful to the call of Christ is not something that you can do alone or on your own. And you need Christian friendship to experience Christ. That the plan of God's redemption being worked out in the world has always been through the church. There is no plan B. And so you either participate in that community and labor in it and find Christ in that, that process, or you separate yourself from the plan of God extending his salvation uh, to the world. And so Christian friendship, Christian community is essential. But we live in a day in which community is not healthy, right? Uh, we, there's no shortage of things being written out, written or people thinking about the breakdown of our communities in the last 70 years. And we can think about many things today, uh, you know, mobility, uh, how we move around all the time, how we're consumed with achievement, 
And we de- usually define achievement by success in terms of wealth or possessions or power. And none of those things are necessarily connected directly to community. Right? We, um, we also, uh, and because we, well, in saying that, what we're pointing up is much of our self-identity, you might say our self-actualization, is what, in what we actually ch- achieve or perceive ourselves to achieve. And we don't necessarily view relationships as part of what is, is our goal for achievement. Now, sometimes I hear women talk in this language. I don't think I've ever heard a man talk, which is ironic, and it's ironic in this sense. So, to make sure I'm communicating clearly, right? We don't, when we think about what does it mean to be made in America, what does it mean to be successful, we don't, we don't necessarily think, well, I have a healthy, vibrant community in which I'm serving the people around me, and they're loving me as well. I do think women sometimes think in superior ways relationally. And the reason that it's ironic is I would say probably men, when they're honest, tell me more often than women do that they're lonely. That they don't feel like they have deep or significant relationships. And this is something that has been uh, observed as a growing and dramatic phenomenon culturally right now. Uh, There are lots of reasons that, that we could consider, but what is interesting is that loneliness has not been a particular focus of uh, consideration until somewhat recently. Uh, in other words, and there's really um, one, one lady who uh, fled Nazi Germany, a psychologist, and came to America to practice in the 1950s, becomes a very famous person uh, and apparently was, was mistaken for being the cleaning lady a number of times in the offices that she worked and came to be known as kind of this little old grandma but what is now considered to be somewhat prophetic in her field uh, because she would work with patients. And in the 1950s, 60s, even into the 70s, it was thought that if something's wrong with someone, it's not because um, they were, they're, they're wired, to, they need something specific. It's just that something's wrong with them. And the way you fix something wrong with a biological entity is you give it medicine or you give it shock treatment or you do brain surgery Right? This is, the body was seen as something mechanistic that could be fixed. Right? And you just have to figure out what you have to do to fix it. Well, in comes this woman. Her name, uh, if I didn't mention it, was Frida Fromm Reichman. And she started working with patients. And she says one of her aha moments was she was working with a patient who was utterly catatonic. And one of her hands was always clenched like this. And just on, she would try to build rapport with her patients. And on a whim one day, she said... Um, you know, the woman would kind of shake her, her fist a, in that, that position. And, and when one day she said, you're, you're telling me that you, you're, she's holding, always holding her thumb up. She said, you're telling me you're lonely and you feel separated, to make a long story short. And the woman immediately relaxed. Uh, the tension in her face went down. Um, she, uh, Reichman knew that she had named something that was afflicting the woman that for various reasons she wasn't able to articulate. And from there on, she began to uh, put forward a theory that in mental illness and in uh, various ailments of that, of that like, the biggest, one of the biggest factors, if not the biggest factor, she would argue it's the biggest factor, is the factor of loneliness. It's a factor of a lack of human connection and an experience of human love. And she began to treat patients in that way, and she saw results that no one else had. Um, people thought she was kind of crazy because she was 
she was approaching something from a different perspective was something that was thought of as slight and unnecessary and not real, real medicine or real science. But it was hard to argue with her results. She writes a famous essay in 1959 called On Loneliness. And what's really interesting is if you fast forward to today, now we unquestionably know that loneliness has incredible detrimental effects on the human body. That it's not simply a psychological factor, right? Basically, you know, we, like to, we used to separate the psychological and the physical. And largely we're realizing today that you can't separate the two. They're intimately intertwined. And so there are all kinds of studies in which um, cancer cells metastasize faster in victims that are lonely. Uh, in the elderly, you, uh, your faculties degrade faster if you're lonely. Uh, if you're lonely, you have more inflammation in your arteries. You have higher blood pressure. All on and on. It even affects genetic components, which, again, is another fascinating thing. Is we, you know, 50 years ago, we thought genetic code was simply stationary. In the last 15 years, there's an entirely new field called epigenetics, and we realize that the genetic, our genes can be affected by our environment, right? And this, is, this helps us to understand how, um, you know, there are the famous studies in, uh, back in communist Romania. Uh, the leader at the time outlawed birth control, and so there was uh, many, many babies born that couldn't be taken care of, and so they were all put into orphanages. And in the orphanages, the nurses were assigned to the babies 1 to 20. And so babies would go through entire days without having any human contact. And so as, as they studied this phenomenon, uh, the babies grew both less gray matter and white matter in their brain than a normal baby. Uh, their genes uh, were affected. Uh, the molecules on their genes were affected. And so they couldn't actually function in a normal way as a result of the lack of human contact and love. And so we've come to this place where we recognize that loneliness is this profoundly detrimental and harmful entity in terms not only of our, our psychology per se, but also of our physical health. Now that's, I think, worth noting in that um, we also, by any measure, would say are the, are the loneliest we've ever been in our cultural history. Right? On any given day, 30% of America would say, I don't feel like I have significant relationships. I don't feel like I have deep connections to other humans um, that I can rely upon. Now, when Peter of course, is writing to a different context. But when he's writing to them and he's saying, you know what, you, you are suffering and you are trying to live out faithfully, but you better understand how essential community is to you. Right? We suffer, they're breaking up in community because they're being persecuted for their faith and it's probably a little bit safer not to identify with each other. But if we hear Peter's words, we realize, oh, community is really important for us. In fact, we probably will expire if we don't take Christian friendship very seriously. And though persecution in the same way may not be our major issue, we certainly have lots that promotes our loneliness and affects us or prevents us from having deep relationship. And so when Peter, you know, as he's closing his letter and exhorts the churches, you better be serious about relationship and community. We had better hear those words because we are an increasingly isolated culture and it's not doing us uh, any, any good... Uh, at all. This loneliness that seems to be on the rise within our culture, and again, loneliness is not being alone, right? They're very different things. Right? You can be alone and not lonely, and you can be in a sea of people and be lonely, right? Being lonely is feeling that you don't, there aren't, aren't, um, you don't have good relationships. You don't have real friends, is the sense of being lonely. What's also part of being lonely, uh, study suggests, is the fear of rejection. 
is this notion that if people really knew me, then they wouldn't want to be my friend. And so we enter this world of control. I'm going to only reveal to you so much about my life. I'm going to manufacture a certain image. I'm going to work to keep that image up. And uh, this ends up being exhausting because you're never really known for who you are. And you're always in a maintenance mode. And this actually just contributes to an even greater sense of loneliness, even though you're trying to manufacture your image so that you'll be more acceptable and won't be as lonely as you currently feel. So you get, we've caught, been caught culturally in this terrible uh, kind of um, loop that is harmful to us. Uh, but Peter has uh, words for us that I think are helpful. He, uh, he writes uh, to the community that the end is at hand. Right? The last chapter of God's redemption. But the reason that he's writing this is that he wants the end to inform our present. Right? It's very much a, a New Testament theme that we should be informed by where the story is going. This is, um, you know, have you ever sat someone down and said, you know, where, where do you see yourself going? What, what's, your, what's your end point? And sometimes I'll ask people that, and some of the, the answers I've heard over the years is, well... I've, I've set myself up to earn such and such, and so I'll retire at such and such a date, at which point I'll get a lake house, and they've got it picked out, and I'm going to move there, and I'm going to sit on the porch, and I'm going to sit in my rocker and then watch the trees. You know, this vision of a, kind of a utopian retirement, right? Another guy told me, uh, my entire life is, is, is flowing towards one point, one goal, and that goal is to get a boat. Right? Everything, I'm going to, to work to this point. I know the boat I want. And once I have that boat, I'm going to move down to the Gulf and live on the Gulf and spend the rest of my days right, sailing around the Gulf. Okay? Now, the point is, if, those, if that's the vision, right, that is their eschatological vision. Right? Eschatology being the fulfillment of all things. When you ask, what is the fulfillment of your life? This is my vision which I'm pursuing. That's going to inform your present. Right? The decisions that you make now are going to be oriented around that fulfillment of all things. So Peter is saying to the churches, your vision for the future better be the kingdom of God. It better be that Jesus is going to sit in judgment over all things. Right? This is what he said just before the passage that we've started in. And the passages are absolutely connected. Right? Jesus is going to sit in judgment over all things. If, you're, if your vision for the fulfillment of all things is earthly and self-centered, and isn't participating in the kingdom of God, then you're never going to be in the right direction. You're never going to be walking a path of discipleship here. You're always going to be headed in the wrong direction. So Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. You better be aware of what, what that is and how it's coming to fruition so that you order your lives appropriately now. And Peter will go on to, uh, to offer four primary exhortations in terms of ordering one's life correctly in light of how things are coming to, that things are coming to a close in Christ Jesus. Right? And so as Peter writes this and we think about, well, are we really living in light of the end? Peter says one of the primary things I want you to keep in mind as, as the end of all things is your, your horizon is that you, um, you love one another above all else. Above all else, love one another earnestly. I think what a, what a beautiful, you know, in terms of all the religions and faiths and all the commands that go with them on the face of the earth, here's Peter saying, above all else, 
the people of God love one another earnestly. And so, if that is our command, that we engage true and deep Christian friendship, we must continue to ask, what gets in the way of it? And again, we could, we could speak of many different things. Our, our absolute um, uh, addiction to achievement in certain fields where we have to aspire to, have, to make some mark, which I, keeps us from engaging friendship because we don't have time. We could talk about our addiction to um, our kids as mortality symbols. Right? What is my significance? It's how well my kid does in some various field. Uh, we could talk about our mobility. We're always moving around. We want a better job. We want to live in a sexier place. And so we find ourselves cutting off relationships for those opportunities. All of these are factors to our loneliness today. Uh, and one that we would have to include is also technology. And just to zero in on that, to some extent, there was a uh, really interesting um, almost bookends to the life of a, a thinker uh, named Sherry Turkle. In 1996, when the internet was just coming on the scene, Sherry Turkle is a, a, a psychologist, social behaviorist, and she studies technology and its interaction with human culture. And in 96, she's on the cover of Wired saying, this internet thing is unbelievable. Uh, these chat rooms, you can get online with people all over the world and talk about things uh, that you have in common and we can share information and she said, this is, this is brilliant. This is going to shape the way that we live. It's going to improve all sorts of things. Then in uh, 2016, she gives a TED Talk. Right? So 20 years have gone by. And she's watched her daughter grow up on technology. And uh, she gets up and she says, I couldn't have been more wrong. Uh, which is pr- pretty hump, you know, to get up and give a national talk as an academic and say, yeah, I really, I really kind of blew it. It's, it's, you don't see that very often. But she gets up and she says, you know, you, you all know it. You're sitting in a board meeting and somebody just sits on their phone. Or you're actually having a conversation with someone and all they're doing is being on their phone. She says, uh, as I study this as a phenomenon and you wouldn't believe the rate at which people text at funerals. Uh, she goes on to talk about how uh, certain spheres of business are talking about a new skill set that one has to acquire to be effective in business. And that is the skill of making eye contact while you're texting. Right? So you, right? so you don't want to offend someone, but you have to get the text done. So you learn the skill of texting without looking. And you look at the person like, oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you're hammering out the message. And this is now a new skill set that's thought to be you know, important in some circles of, of business. I'm, I saw a conversation with someone this week, and I, I was trying to respond to a text, and I can't do two things at once. And so they would start talking, and I'd start texting, and I'm thinking I can do both. And then I'd, told, I'd look up, and I'm not sure what was said. I'm, like, I'm sorry, I'd have to, you have to tell me that again. Right? And the degrees to which we dehumanize one another for uh, this, gr- this grand importance of, uh, of saying LOL to some ridiculous thing that's been sent uh, to us. Right? So, uh, so Turkle is, is thinking through these various images. And... You know, things that you think about and talk about. Parents at home on their phones and not engaging the kids. Kids at home on their phones and not engaging their parents. Uh, You go out to a restaurant, right? Every time you go out to eat, now there's one table, right? The family that shows up with all their devices. And they just sit at the table and eating and no one's talking to one another, right? Really sad when you see the married couple, right? Out to dinner and not talking at all and just on their devices, right? 
This is, so Turkle is saying this, we, we have to be aware that this is having some harmful effects on us in, in terms of our community. So what she goes on to say, we're learning this new way of being, which is being alone together. You're together, you're in proximity to other human beings, but you don't have actually any real connection. You're alone, even in the mix and proximity of these other human beings. And she calls this, this is facilitated what she calls the Goldilocks of social relationship, which is, I want you to be, uh, I don't want you to be too close, but I don't want you to be too far. I want you to be just right. And technology helps me make you just right. right? I don't have to call you and talk to you directly. I don't have to see you face to face, but I can reach out to you when I want to reach out to you. She says we're, we're buying into this notion that that is a good thing and that we like that even though that it's making us insanely lonely as we do it because part of the effect of engaging, keeping people just right with technology is that we mediate our persona through technology. Which again, as we mentioned in the beginning, this, or maybe I didn't, maybe it was the first service. But it's when we mediate our persona through technology, you have the ability to edit, to retouch, to delete. Right? And so you're constantly thinking, um, what, what, uh, what image am I putting out there? Right? Uh, have you ever noticed, sometimes it's really good that people delete what they post. But um, you, it's causing you to live in the space where you're thinking about it. Like you post something and then you think, how do people receive what I posted? Do I need to go back and change what I posted? Do I want it to be put a different way? Do I want to change a picture? Again, on and on about how we are uh, presenting ourselves. And so while life and relationships are very messy, we pretend that we can exist in this kind of antiseptic space where we clean it all up a bit. And it's a little bit less messy. And uh, Turkle says this, this addiction, right? And now p- people are talking about addiction to phones, like people can't be without their phones. People sleep with their phones. That's so, some of you laughed like you do it. I, some of you are like, what? Yes, of course I sleep with my phone. I don't sleep with my phone. All right, so why? Why are we becoming so enmeshed with these, with these objects? Three fantasies, Turkle says, that they uh, promise us. One, our attention can be wherever we want it to be. Right, immediately, if anything's happening in the world, we can focus in and be there. You're right? Some of you, are, you're, you're the group of technology people, you're like, I don't have a real problem with Facebook, but you check the news all the time. Right? You have to be in the know. And if something's going on, you're following it from all different perspectives. Right? And this is the fantasy number one. I can have my attention anywhere I want it to be. Number two, we can always be heard. Even though I don't feel like anyone's listening to me, I don't feel like I have strong relationships, I can go on and post something, and then I have the illusion of being heard. And number three, we never have to be alone. Right? I, feel, I begin to feel lonely. What am I going to do? I'm going to get on something. And I can read uh, something on Facebook or something on some, something else. And I feel connected in some way. Uh, I can comment on some article. And so I engage uh, in these three fantasies, which makes me uh, rely more and more on technology. And more and more as you rely on technology and think that it prevents, um, thinks that it offers, it fulfills these three things, Turkle says that we, um, we, we buy into the notion that being alone, well, as you rely on technology to, for those three reasons, you think that being alone is a problem. Right? So, 
And I think, you know, you may not be one of these technology addicts, right? But what do you do if suddenly you find yourself alone during the day? Right? Nothing's going on. Maybe you're at a stoplight. You have a moment to catch your breath. What do you do? Right? Be honest. You check your phone. Right? I don't really like this feeling necessarily of being alone, so I'm going to see what's going on or who probably reached out to me and wants to talk to me and needs my response and needs to hear from me. Right? But Turkle then goes on to say this is a huge problem because it's uh, a complete illusion that technology in this way actually handles loneliness. She said a, a pretty profound thing at the end of her talk. She says, um, I'll read it so I don't mess it up. If we don't teach our children to be alone, then they are always going to be lonely. If we don't teach our children to be alone, then they are always going to be lonely. She says, we're increasingly, as she's watching the world and studying this all the time, she says, increasingly, we, can't, we have lost the ability to be alone. We think that alone, being alone is something to be solved. We pursue of solving it through technology, and as a result, that only makes us more lonely. And again, we're back in this vicious cycle. And what a, what a rare opportunity in terms of the gospel and putting the glory of Jesus Christ, right? At the end of our passage, Peter says, this is all for the glory of God. How better to put the glory of God on display, the glory of the triune God who exists in perfect community by being a community that exhibits real relationship in a world that is increasingly isolated and lonely. To say, no, there is a place where real relationships can exist. And they exist because God has called us into this opportunity for relationship and to love one another in a particular way. It's not an easy calling and it's not necessarily one that we, (laughs) it's definitely not one that we've mastered. But it's one that uh, gives us the opportunity both to be human and to put the gospel on display uh, to the world. And so I think uh, as we follow Peter's line of thought, what is this exhortation to to gospel community, to real Christian friendship. We're recognizing that, yes, lots stand in our way, and yes, we can be fooled by technology, among other things. What does it mean, then, to really aspire to a community that reflects the glory of Jesus Christ and lends to the glory of Jesus Christ? Peter gives us four exhortations, and they go in this order. Number one, think rightly and be clear-minded so you can pray. That one caught me by surprise, frankly. Peter says you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now we know that the Christians were Gentiles that Peter t- he's writing to, and they've come from a lifestyle of debauchery. Right? If you look back at oh, if you look back. Uh, in chapter 4, in verse 3, Peter's referred to their life before conversion. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Peter says, listen, you need to put these passions, you've had enough time to pursue these things and you know that they're empty. You have to be free from them. Why? And I could think of things that I would expect Peter to say a lot before I would say, for prayer. This is why you need to free yourself up. Instead, we're like the people, you know, you go to a, a birthday party and you play the game where you bend over and you put your forehead on a bat 
and you spin around as many times as you can and then you have to try to run a straight line. Right? That's what our lives look like a lot. And Peter's saying you have to stop. You have to exercise intentionality to order your life and to say no to certain things, which may involve putting technology down, so that you actually can be engaged in prayer. Call upon God to act on behalf of the world, to act on behalf of this community, to draw near to Him in relationship. We realize if we're not... If we're not praying, then what kind of relationship do we think is being facilitated between us and God? And if no relationship is being facilitated between us and God, then we can hardly expect that any significant relationship will be facilitated between one another, us you know, together as a community. Uh, Peter goes on to say, after think rightly and be clear-minded so you can pray, he says, persist in love for one another that covers sin. Now, this isn't that we excuse sin or overlook it. But it is that we would love one another to such an extent that sometimes people may be engaged in, in sin that is simply the effect of having a very bad day or a very bad week or perhaps a very bad year. And are you quickly to say, you're sinning, you need to repent, I'm going to bring you before the elders? Or do you say, I'm so sorry. Can I help you? Is there a way that I can love you? Is there a way that I can serve you even though you're being a jerk? Right? When you do that, though, you participate in telling the story of the Messiah whose death and resurrection atones for, covers up sin. Right? We, we become a community in which we, uh, again, we, don't get the wrong idea, we cover up sin in the way that we, um, our love covers, covers it up, a multitude of sins. Thirdly, be gracious. Uh, be graciously hospitable to fellow believers without complaining. Right? Again, this isn't particularly a gift, it's a command. Are you hospitable? When's the last time you had someone into your home? When's the last time you actually sought someone out and said, I want to exercise hospitality. I want to exercise love towards you in that way and get to know you. Number four, serve one another with the gifts of grace you have received. Right? Amazingly, Peter says gifts are from God. They are given to everyone. And they are given so that you can serve one another. So what is your gift? How do you use it to serve? How do you use it to build up the body? These four aspects are what Peter is saying. These are necessary for you, church, to survive. This is necessary for you to live out the Christian friendship that is born out of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is necessary for you to live in this way to actually have your life informed by the end of all things, by the way that God is going to wrap things up in Jesus Christ. In a world that is increasingly isolated, we have an opportunity. If we lived in this fashion, we would be, we would be water in a desert. We would put on a feast of real relationship in a world that is increasingly devoid of real relationship. Now, we have a long way to go. In many ways, I think we're, we're struggling Right? And in many ways, I, I think uh, together we have to wrestle with what does it mean to live this out? You know, we've had a hard time. We, we went to two services in January. Any sociologist will tell you that no human being is really capable of knowing more than 150 people. Well, what happens when the church gets up towards 250? How do we know one another? Right? How do we experience real community? These are hard questions, which I don't, I don't think I anticipated well. And I think we have to figure out as we move forward to see how are we going to really be faithful to what Peter instructs? 
And at the same time, there are beautiful pictures of community. I hear virtually every week, someone's hurting, someone's struggling with something, and someone else in the body goes and approaches and tries to bear that burden with them. That makes me proud to be at Rockwell Press. We see it in other ways as well, in terms of people using their gifts to serve the body. You know, this, was, this week did not start well. Uh, the rain caused the drain over here to back up, which it always does, which caused the basement to flood, right? And so, uh, which was pretty normal. Like, that's, that happens all the time. But then the line exiting the sump pump broke while the pump was on. So the pump is shooting water into the basement on the other side, right? So it's flooding. And it's one of those moments where you think about despairing. But, you know, Dwayne comes in and fixes the sump pump. Uh, Louis comes in and plums out the drain, right? While Louis's here, he discovers a gas leak and goes ahead and, and fixes that as well, right? People are using their gifts to keep the body going. And, right, we would run out of time if we talked about the people who care for our infants in the nursery every week, the musicians who lead us here, uh, right? People in every corner. You know, it, one of the great things about Rockwell Press is that you're pretty hard-pressed to find someone who's doing nothing. I think that speaks pretty well of our community, of people using their gifts to build up the body. So, this is, this is the question to you, right? That Peter is challenging the churches and he challenges us are you living in light of the end? Now, if you are, then you're being faithful to those four challenges. You're clear-minded for prayer. You persist in love that covers sin. You're hospitable without complaining. And you're serving one another with your gifts. Those four is what it means for Peter to live in light of the end. Are you being obedient? Do you feel far from Jesus and are interested in being obedient? And I think one thing that is worth considering is perhaps your distance from Jesus is not because Jesus has moved, but because you have chosen not to be obedient to these four exhortations. And to the degree that you will not be obedient to Christ's prescription for what it means to live in faithfulness in this world and experience Him is the degree to which you will probably feel distant from Him. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have created a community and you have invited people from every, every race and every ethnicity and every walk of life, grandparents and parents and children. Uh, together, you have forged us into a family by the blood of Christ. Would you please help us to love one another earnestly above all else? Would you help us to be clear-minded for prayer? Would you help us to be hospitable without complaining? Would you help us to serve one another the good gifts that you have given? And may we do all of this to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.